Well, welcome to Presbyterian Reformed Churchman. I'm Pastor George, and I'm actually on vacation. That's right, it's my kids' spring break, and we're having some family time. But rest assured, I have a great episode for you today, because what I'm going to play for you now is a talk that was given at the 2022 Gospel Reformation Network Conference in Birmingham, Alabama, by a Dr. Johnny Gibson. The talk is entitled, Pay Careful Attention, Life and Doctrine in the Gospel Minister. Now, while this talk is tailored more toward the teaching elder, all the qualifications are the same, and so it does hold great relevance to teaching elders and ruling elders alike. Additionally, it is ruling elders, usually on pastor search committees, are there ensuring that pulpits are protected. And so this is an important message for the ruling elders to hear. I will say, as we heard this talk in that conference uh, last year, it became, uh, there, there was just a weight to it and a gravity to it as we would hear the qualifications for office of teaching elder, ruling elder in the PCA. And just this thought, wow, what did I get myself into? And yet, what I want to tell you, if you feel that, that is a good thing. But rest assured, Dr. Gibson brings us wonderful gospel hope as he points us to Jesus Christ, our great high priest, who perfectly fulfills all of these qualifications for elder. But then he gives us his spirit to walk by the spirit and to live this out by faith, to pursue godliness as we seek to shepherd the flock. And so that is there. And I know this will be a great blessing to you. As I said, this is a Gospel Reformation Network video. You can find this on their YouTube page. I have received permission to play this. I am also on the Gospel Reformation Network General Council, which means I seek to further the purpose, vision, distinctives of the GRN within the PCA uh, for the glory of God. And so the GRN's purpose is very simple. It's very clear. The purpose is to cultivate healthy reformed churches in the Presbyterian Church in America. And there are seven distinctives by which we seek to do that. And I won't read them now. So what you're going to hear now is, again, Dr. Johnny Gibson on this talk. And when it opens up, you will actually hear from Dr. David Garner, who is also at Westminster Theological Seminary, he will introduce our speaker. And with that, let's go to the talk. There are different types of scholars, even in biblical and theological studies. The gentleman who is coming to open God's Word to us now is a meticulous scholar, very, very careful with the text of Holy Scripture but never sees scholarship as an end into itself, it is in service of Christ and his church. It's a great privilege for me to welcome my friend and colleague, Dr. Johnny Gibson, to come and speak on a topic that is not only a matter of personal scholarship for him, but of personal application. The Apostle Paul reminds Timothy to keep close watch on yourself and the teaching. Dr. Johnny Gibson is one who does both. Let's welcome him as he opens God's word to us. Johnny. Well, good morning. Uh, thank you to Thank you to John and uh, the GRN Council for the very warm uh, welcome and for the kind invitation. If you have a Bible, please turn in your copy of God's Word to 1 Timothy uh, chapter 3, and we're going to read the first seven verses. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verses 1 to 7. And as we come to the reading and the preaching of God's Word, let me pray for us. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, 
he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, a one-woman man, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Those who do away with Christian doctrine are, whether they are aware of it or not, the worst enemies of Christian living. The coals of orthodoxy are necessary for the fire of piety. The coals of orthodoxy are necessary for the fire of piety. So wrote Charles Spurgeon during the downgrade controversy in the Baptist Union in Great Britain in the 19th century. The famous London preacher was fighting against doctrinal indifference and doctrinal deviation from the orthodox truths of Scripture. Spurgeon was responding to various people who claimed that the church didn't need doctrine. It just needed piety. Hence Spurgeon's analogy, the coals of orthodoxy are necessary for the fire of piety. For Spurgeon, doctrine led to piety. This can be seen throughout the pastoral epistles. Paul speaks about how sound doctrine leads to godly living, 1 Timothy 4, 6, and 7, and how sound doctrine leads to ungodly living, 2 Timothy 2, 16. So yes, doctrine influences life and piety. The goals, the coals of orthodoxy are indeed necessary for the fire of piety. But the opposite is also true. The coals of piety are necessary for the fire of orthodoxy. The coals of piety are necessary for the fire of orthodoxy. We tend to think that the relationship between doctrine and life runs in only one direction. Doctrine influences life. But the opposite is also true. Life influences doctrine for good or ill. What's so striking in 1 Timothy is that the direction of influence is mainly from life to doctrine for good or ill. Look with me at chapter 1, verse 5 and 6. Paul says to Timothy, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion. Notice what produces false teachers. It's not false doctrine. It's ungodly living. Certain people, by swerving from these, that is, by swerving from love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith, by swerving from these, such people have wandered away into vain discussions, that is, false doctrine. In other words, heteropraxy leads to heterodoxy. The connection between life and doctrine is again seen at the end of chapter 1 and verse 18. Wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Notice how Hymenaeus and Alexander shipwrecked their faith and were led into doctrinal blasphemies. By rejecting this, that is, by rejecting faith and a good conscience, 
In other words, heteropraxy leads to heterodoxy. Same again in chapter 4, verse 1 and following, where Paul says that in the latter time some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the doctrines of demons. And where do the doctrines of demons come from? Verse 2, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Seared consciences produce skewed doctrines. In other words, heteropraxies beget heterodoxies. Same again in chapter 6, in verse 3 and 4, Paul says, false doctrine arises from proud hearts. In verse 10, he says that the love of money is a craving that leads some to wandering from the faith. In other words, money is just as dangerous to the Christian faith as heresy. So as you can see, running through this letter is an integral connection between life and doctrine for ill. Ungodly living leads to unsound teaching. Heteropraxy begets heterodoxy. Of course, it's not just for ill, it's also for good. Godly living leads to godly doctrine. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5, Timothy is to teach sound doctrine from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Similar connections are made in chapter 4, 6, and 7. Godly living is the context in which Timothy is to teach good doctrine. We might say if heteropraxy begets heterodoxy, then orthopraxy begets orthodoxy. Ernst Hingstenberg, the Old Testament scholar, captures in succinct words this symbiotic relationship between doctrine and life, life and doctrine. No orthodoxy without pietism. No piety without orthodoxy. This connection between life and doctrine gets at the very heart of Paul's first pastoral epistle. It's seen in chapter 3, verse 14 to 15, where he states the purpose of his letter. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and fortress of the truth. Notice again the connection between doctrine and life. Paul says the church is the pillar and buttress of the truth. There's the doctrine. But it's also the place where God's people ought to behave a certain way. There's the life. This is why Paul penned this epistle to Timothy, because he wants to inform Timothy and the church in Ephesus how to behave, how to live, and one of the means to accomplishing this is through godly leaders. Godly living in the church occurs through godly leaders. How people behave in the church is dependent on how their leaders behave. Which brings us to our passage in chapter 3, verse 1 to 7, which I want to consider under four simple points. Number one, a good desire, a good desire. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Now, given my audience, I don't think I need to convince you that this office of overseer, episcope, is the same office of elder, presbyteros, or shepherd, poime, or teacher, didaskalos, these are just different titles in the New Testament for the one office. Each title points out a different function of the office. Overseer is connected to ruling. Elder carries the idea of authority and example. Shepherd conveys pastoring, and teacher conveys instruction. So there are different titles, but they just convey different functions of the one office. And Paul says, if anyone aspires to this office, 
He desires a good work. But who is the anyone? Can it be anyone? Well, no. In chapter 2, Paul says it can't be women because of the creation order, so there's a gender discrimination. But it can't just be any man either, because this faithful saying in verse 1 and then the list of qualifications in verses 2 to 7 show that there is a discrimination to this office even among men. The discrimination begins, verse 1, in a man's heart, and then it moves to his life, verses 2 to 7. So there's a gender discrimination to the office, followed by a heart discrimination, followed by a character discrimination. Among men, the discrimination begins with desire. Does the man want it? Does he want it? Martin Lloyd-Jones once said to a young man considering ministry, if you can find anything else to do, go and do it. I'm not sure what his exact motives were, but I wonder if he was testing the young man's desire. Did he want to do it above everything else? Because if a man doesn't want it, then Christian ministry isn't for him. But if he does want it, then that is a good thing. That is a good desire. So good, it gets canonized in the faithful sayings of Scripture. Have you ever thought of that? This faithful saying stands among all the other faithful sayings, and all the other faithful sayings concern God and the gospel of Jesus Christ in some way. This one concerns church polity, but it gets equal status with the faithful sayings. An aspiration for Christian ministry is a good desire, so good it deserves to be part of the faithful sayings memorialized in the Christian canon. The second half of the saying tells us why it is a good desire, because such a man desires a noble task, literally a good work, which brings us to our second point. A good desire and a good work. Verse 1, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a good work. Now, the word work is a bit surprising. We'd expect Paul to say, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a good office. Isn't that how the syllogism is supposed to work? But that's not what Paul says here. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a good work. Why does Paul change office to work in the second part of the syllogism? Because he wants any man aspiring to the office to know that overseer is not a title to be enjoyed, but a task to be done. Reverend is not something we put on our CV or our Twitter handle. Reverend is a work to be done with our hands, with our heart. The office of overseer involves work. In 2 Timothy, Paul uses three analogies to underline this. He says the minister is a soldier, an athlete, and a hard-working farmer. And then he goes on to call the teaching elder a worker who handles the Word of God. So it's an office that involves work, but it's a good work. And the emphasis is on the word good, kalu ergu. The adjective is fronted in the Greek for emphasis, which means that for Paul, the defining work of this office is not its difficulty. It's its nobility. It's not its hardness, but its goodness. Gregory of Nazianzus called the work of ministry the art of arts and the science of sciences. There's not a job like it. Listen to Calvin. For it is no light matter to represent the Son of God in such a great task as erecting and extending God's kingdom, in caring for the salvation of souls whom the Lord himself has deigned to purchase with his own blood, 
and in ruling the church, which is God's inheritance. What job in the world compares with that? The office of overseer, if you think about it, is the third highest office in the world. As head of the church and king of the universe, Jesus Christ holds the highest office. Next, it's the apostles. And after that, it's us brothers. Overseers of Christ's church, erecting and extending the kingdom of God to the ends of the earth. That's why Philip Brooks said, if any man is called to preach, don't stoop to be a king. Or, because I'm in America, don't stoop to be a president. <laughs> what you do each Lord's Day as you ascend into the pulpit is far more important than any legislation that comes out of Capitol Hill. It's far more important than any ruling that may come out of the Supreme Court in the coming months. As Herman Melville said, the world is a ship on a journey, and the pulpit is its pry. That is, the preaching of the Word of God leads the world on its journey. Or I love how Cotton Mather describes ministers. He says, we are like angels preparing to sound the trumpets to bring in the eschaton. A good work indeed. Well, we've seen a good desire, a good work, and then third, a good man, verses 2 to 7, a good man. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. A good work requires a good man. That's what the therefore is therefore in verse 2. The work is good. Therefore, the character of the man must be good. In verse 4, uh, Paul will use a similar word, well. He must manage his household well. In verse 9, he will use the word good. He must have a good testimony without ciders. So, a good work requires a good man, someone who does things well. And that's what Paul outlines for us here in verses 2 to 7 with this list of characteristics. Notice the word must envelops the list, verse 2. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, verse 7. Moreover, he must be well thought of. These characteristics are not suggestions. They're obligations. They're mandatory characteristics. And apart from two characteristics, one in verse 4, manage household and care for family, and the other in verse 7, have a good reputation, all the characteristics are governed by the verb to be. In fact, the verb to be is only used once in these six verses. Everything in verses 2 to 3 and verse 6 hangs off the one use of the verb to be in verse 2. Now, I know that's why some of you have come to this conference for syntactical and statistical analysis like that, which Elon Musk will be reading about in a matter of minutes. But note what it communicates. The list is more about who a man is than what a man does. It's more about who he is than what he does. He is called to do a good work. He's called to a lot of doing. But he must first be a certain kind of man, a good man. In other words, Paul is as interested in who does the teaching in church as he is in what is taught in church. The man who teaches matters as much as the material he teaches. For Paul, life is as important as doctrine, behavior as important as beliefs, conduct as important as catechesis, exegesis ethics as important as exegesis, piety as important as preaching, the manner of life as important as the ministry of the Word. In other words, orthopraxy for Paul is as important 
as orthodoxy. Charles Swindoll captures it well. Ministry is a character profession. Which brings us to the characteristics of an elder in chapter 3, verses 2 to 7. Now, I've seen these characteristics divided up in various ways. I like to view them as five strands of a man's character and person. There are the personal qualities, uh, the pedagogical quality, the pastoral qualities, the maturational quality, and finally, the reputable quality. These five strands interweave through this list to form the fiber of a man's character. He must have personal qualities, verses 2 to 3. He must have pedagogical qualities, verse 2, able to teach. He must demonstrate pastoral qualities, manage and care for his own family, verses 4 and 5. He must have the maturational quality of not being a new convert, verse 6. And he must be of reputable character, verse 7. These five strands interweave to give a holistic picture of the man fit for the office of overseer. Now, for our purposes this morning, I want to focus in on the personal qualities in verses 2 to 3. Uh, they begin with above reproach, above reproach. The meaning of the word is not sinless, but blameless. It means that there is nothing obvious in the man's character that serves as a reproach to him or his reputation. He does not conduct himself in any manner that would attract criticism by those inside or outside the church. In Calvin's words, he ought not to be marked by any disgrace that would detract from his authority. In this sense, above reproach is not to be read simply as one characteristic among the other 14 characteristics. No, rather, it functions as a kind of umbrella term for the rest. In other words, the reason it's first in the list is because it is a general characteristic that crowns all of the specific characteristics. Put differently, the five strands of personal, pedagogical, pastoral, maturational, reputable are enclosed in a sheath of irreproachability, of irreproachability. Well, let's look at the rest of the characteristics. Some uh, we will pause on, and others we can pass over more quickly because they're self-explanatory. Now, remember, we're under the third heading, a good man. We've seen a good desire, a good work, which requires a good man. And this is what a good man looks like. He is, first, a one-woman man. Your English translation will say, the husband of one wife. But if you look at your footnote, it is really a one-woman man. That's a better rendering of the Greek. And there's an emphasis because that compound adjective, one woman, is fronted in the Greek for emphasis. I think Paul begins with this characteristic because it is one of the most public aspects of a man's character, because marriage is a public institution. But we need to unpack it a little. What does one woman man actually mean? What does it look like? Well, it does not mean that every overseer must be married. While that's certainly desirable and ought to be the norm, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, the apostle himself was not married, yet he would have had to have met this standard. Nor does it mean that a man cannot remarry if his wife dies. It does mean that polygamy is ruled out, but the phrase is not trying to simply point up monogamy as such. Rather, it speaks more of a man's behavior with women in general than of any particular marriage in particular, whether he is married or unmarried. <clears throat> Lenski, the Lutheran commentator, puts it like this, the sense is that the man has nothing to do with any other woman. 
It reveals a commitment to the purity of male-female relations in all areas, physical, sexual, relational, emotional. In terms of physical and sexual purity, such a man does not sleep around if he is married or unmarried. He does not move from one girlfriend to the next if he's unmarried. He does not view pornography, whether occasionally or addictively. And any lust that does arise in his heart for other women, he seeks to mortify it by the Spirit's help. In terms of relational and emotional purity, he is not flirty or familiar or overly friendly with the women at church. He does not have friendships with women with whom he shares his most intimate feelings and deepest concerns, things he does not share with his own wife. If married, he does not go outside of his marriage to find emotional connectivity with other women that should only be found inside his marriage. Isn't that part of the wedding vow? Forsaking all others, do I give myself unto you as long as we both shall live? It's not just a statement of sexual fidelity. It's of emotional fidelity. The problem with Ravi Zacharias was that he breached the seventh commandment before he breached the seventh commandment. Al Martin puts it like this, a man who aspires to or who occupies the pastoral office must be patently, not marginally or barely acceptably, a one-woman man. He must be a man who has one woman in his heart, in his eyes, in his arms, in his bed, and in his desires. And in this day of smartphones, we might add, and a one-woman man in his emails and texts. Where do affairs begin, brothers? With emotional entanglement over emails and texts. Fidelity even in the way we communicate with women over emails and texts. The frequency, the intensity, the content must all be above reproach. So he is to be a one-woman man in all his interactions with women. But that's just one aspect of the compound adjective, a one-woman man. There's the other aspect of the compound adjective. He is to be a one-woman man. Paul presumes the man holding the office of overseer is heterosexually orientated. The man is other sex attracted. Now, this is not to say that a man who previously experienced homosexual desires or who exhibited homosexual practice is automatically disqualified from office. 1 Corinthians 6, such were some of you. So just having a past doesn't disqualify a man. If the Apostle Paul, a man who previously desired the killing of Christians, could hold office, then having a past of a particular sin does not in itself disqualify a man from office. The point is that it must be in the past, and not one that continues to control the man or in which he finds his identity in the present. Of course, there can still be a struggle with remaining sin. Who of us here does not have a struggle with remaining sin? That's not the issue. But the point is, there has to at least be a struggle. The desires have to be mortified, not glorified. The behavior has to be repudiated, not celebrated. The identity has to be disowned, not owned. In other words, a man fit for ministry is a man pursuing who God made him to be, despite the fall. God made Adam to be a one-woman man. And by the Spirit's regenerating work, that is what God is conforming us back to. 
A man fit to hold office is a man who pursues and behaves and identifies as a one-woman man, despite any personal sin struggles he may have, married or unmarried. A man who aspires to the office of overseer must be a one-woman man. He must be striving to be who God made him to be. So, that's the first personal characteristic. Next, he must be sober-minded. This means that he shows restraint in his conduct. He acts in a clear-headed way in his daily life. Lenski comments that he displays soundness and balance in judgment, not flighty, unstable. Self-controlled. This denotes a thoughtful self-control in all aspects of his life, his words, actions, food, drink, money. Respectable. That is, being orderly, well-behaved, virtuous. It carries the sense of having a good reputation with others. Hospitable. His, own, his home is open. Not a drunkard. Always speaks, also speaks for itself. The qualification implies the overseer enjoys his drink, but not excessively. He understands the proverb well, wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Proverbs 20, verse 1. He is not violent. This covers all kinds of violence, physical, obviously, but also verbal and legal. A man holding office should not resort to verbal or legal threats or action. Such actions would be unconscionable. For a man who is supposedly caring for the household of God, to threaten someone in the household of God verbally or legally would be like him threatening his own child. Would you appoint a man to office who threatened his own child? Not gentle, sorry, not violent, but gentle. Calvin comments helpfully, a man who knows how to bear injuries peacefully and with moderation, who excuses much, who swallows insults, who does not make himself dreaded for his harsh severity. Instead, he is to be known for his tenderness, kindness, forgiveness, able to move on after some disagreement. Not quarrelsome. This is related to gentleness, a peaceable and uncontentious spirit. Of course, it doesn't mean that an elder can't speak his mind. The Apostle Paul did so in rather pointed fashion in many of his epistles. It means rather that he does so respectfully, reasonably, not argumentatively. Not a lover of money speaks for itself. Now, what's so remarkable about this list of personal qualities including the pedagogical, the pastoral, the maturational, the reputable. What's so remarkable about the list is that it is so unremarkable. Every characteristic here is required of every Christian. There's not a single characteristic mentioned that is not required elsewhere of a Christian. I wish I had the time to match up each of them to a biblical text, but it's possible to do so, which then begs the question, so, how are we to decide which men qualify as overseers if every characteristic is required of every Christian man? You say, well, it's teaching. No, a father is to teach his children. So, how are we to discern who qualifies for eldership? Well, we're back to the very first characteristic. He must be above reproach the all-encompassing category of irreproachability is the discriminating mark to identify which men are to qualify as overseers in the church. Which men are blameless with respect to this list? Which men are above reproach as a one-woman man? Which men are above reproach in their self-control? Which men are above reproach in their use of alcohol? 
Who manages their household well? Which men have a good reputation with outsiders? Another way of putting this is, which men set an example of how to live? That's what the characteristic of above reproach is really about. It's about setting an example. 1 Timothy 4.12, Paul says, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in faith, in love, in purity. In Titus 2, Paul tells Titus, be a model of good works. Being above reproach is about being an example. So if you're ever stuck about who to choose among a group of men to be an elder, just ask yourself, well, who do we want our people in the church to emulate? Is this man worthy of people emulating him? Or if you're, if you're stuck with a discipline issue and you're like, do we discipline or not? Well, just ask yourself the question, could we tell our people in our church to follow his example? And if you can't, then brothers, there has to be some discipline. Otherwise, you need to promote his behavior and say, follow it. Because isn't that what an elder is? An example to others. Now, I think this is the one characteristic that is almost forgotten today when it comes to choosing elders or disciplining elders. I was reminded of this a few years ago when I heard about two high-profile evangelical leaders who were accused of inappropriate relations with women, not their wives. In both cases, the men admitted that while they had not slept with these women, they had become willing participants in communication and behavior that at the very least give off the appearance of impropriety. They admitted becoming too emotionally involved with them. In one case, there was more than a year of deeply personal and emotional communication between a man and a woman, a secret daddy-daughter relationship. And when it went south, as all emotional entanglements do, the woman eventually turned on him. He threatened suicide, and the next thing, it all ended in an NDA. In the other case, numerous women came forward to testify that on several occasions over decades, they had felt the advances of this Christian leader in words, emails, text messages, invitations to hotel rooms, requests for physical contact, and kisses and hugs, in each case, the two men acknowledged a level of the appearance of impropriety, but both denied the fact of impropriety. What was interesting when all of this came out was that the evangelical world heard about it, read about it, and hardly batted an eyelid. In fact, both men remained speakers on big platforms and the evangelical circuit. And when I read about these two cases, question 99 of the Westminster Larger Catechism came to my mind. It's the question that begins the section on the Ten Commandments. What rules are to be observed for the right understanding of the Ten Commandments? Answer, for the right understanding of the Ten Commandments, these rules are to be observed. And then it gives eight points. Here's point six, that under one sin or duty, all of the same kind are forbidden or commanded, together with all the causes, means, occasions, and appearances thereof, and provocations thereunto. And then the question that ends the section on the Ten Commandments, question 151, what are those aggravations that makes some sins more heinous than others? Answer, sins receive their aggravations from the persons offending. If they be of riper age, greater experience of grace, eminent for profession, gifts, place, office, guides to others, and whose example is likely to be followed by others. I note what the Westminster divines understood. Wherever an elder goes, and whatever an elder does, he is a guide to others. 
one whose example is likely to be followed by others. Cotton Mather put it well, examples, they do charm us into imitation, for good or ill. I've often thought to myself, if these two men were Presbyterians, then they would have been in breach of their confessional vows and would have been subject to discipline or disqualification from their presbyteries. Because under the sin or duty of the seventh commandment, all of the same kind are forbidden or commanded together with all the causes, means, occasions, appearances thereof, and provocations thereunto. You cannot get a more comprehensive statement of what above reproach means. For example, as Christian elders, we are to be one woman men and avoid all causes, means, occasions, appearances, and provocations that might call into question our fidelity to the marriage bond, whether married or single. And you can apply that to any other characteristic in the list. Now, there's a typical response to this point about being above reproach, and I've heard it from ignorant folk and also, sadly, from some ordained folk. It goes something like this. Sure, Paul says above reproach, but come on, we all break the commandments. Show a bit of grace. Paul wasn't a perfectionist. I'll let John Calvin respond. It is one thing to be burdened by ordinary faults that do not hurt a man's reputation, because the most excellent men share them, but quite another to have a name that is held in infamy, infamy and besmirched by some scandalous disgrace. And that's what above reproach is tied to, brothers, reputation, and more importantly, the reputation of God and His gospel. This, brothers, is our high calling. The good desire for the good work of overseer requires a good man. It requires a godly man. It requires a man above reproach. Well, I wonder how that makes you feel. If you're anything like me, then you probably feel overwhelmed, despairing, convicted, because who of us can honestly say we've kept these characteristics well? Robert Murray McShane wrote in his memoir, the seeds of all sins are in my heart, and perhaps all the more dangerously that I do not see them myself. Or as Calvin said, we are all, even the best and ablest of us, incapable of performing as, as we should such a work of God. I'm sure we can all identify with the prophet Isaiah as we feel God's call on our lives. Woe is me, for I am a sinful man. And that is how we ought to feel. And when we feel that way, then we need to go and visit our minister. We need to go and visit Jesus Christ. The good work of Christian ministry requires a good man. It requires a godly man. It requires a godly minister. And the good news, brothers, is that in the gospel, God has provided us with such a minister. Thomas Goodwin said, God had only one son, and he made him a minister. And since the office of minister was first Jesus' office before it is ours, Jesus had to meet the standards of the office. And that is exactly what he did. During his earthly ministry, Jesus proved himself to be a man above reproach in every aspect of his life. He was a one-woman man in the sense that he came down from heaven single-mindedly to pursue a bride. Jesus was not and is still not a single man. He came from heaven as a suitor, seeking a bride. After his resurrection, he left the earth a betrothed man, 
and he is currently seated at his father's right hand, waiting for his bride to join him on his wedding day at the great marriage supper of the Lamb. This is why he kept himself from all other women during his earthly ministry, because he was focused on one woman, his bride. In all his interactions with other women, there was not even a hint of anything inappropriate, not physically, not sexually, not relationally, not emotionally. Jesus was sober-minded and self-controlled. Just think of his interactions with different kinds of people, especially the agitating Pharisees and Sadducees. He was slow to speak and quick to listen. He was respectable among his peers. Some addressed him as good teacher. Others said that they knew he had come from God. He was hospitable to his disciples. He hosted them for the Last Supper, even washing their feet before serving them bread and wine. He was apt at teaching. He spoke with authority and amazed people. He astonished the crowds with his parables and intrigued his disciples with his teaching. He enjoyed his wine and food, but he was never drunk, and he never joked about being drunk. He was not violent. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he told Peter to put away his sword when the soldiers came to arrest him. And when the soldiers struck him in the face, he did not strike back, even with his tongue. He was gentle. To the weary and heavy burdened, he said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. He was not quarrelsome. In his debates with the Pharisees and Sadducees, he never participated just for the sake of winning an argument, but rather for winning them in the argument. He was not a lover of money. Judas kept the money purse for the disciples, not Jesus. Nor was he greedy for gain. When Satan offered him all the kingdoms of the world, he refused to grasp for them. He managed his own household well, telling his father that he had kept all those whom he had given him, except Judas, who was foreordained to destruction. He was mature. He entered ministry at the age of 30. He had a good testimony with outsiders. Even after a judicial trial under Roman law, Pilate declared, I find no guilt in this man. Jesus was blameless throughout his whole earthly ministry. More than that, he was sinless. In his earthly state, he met all the requirements of a man aspiring for the office of overseer, and he met them without reproach, perfectly. He set an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. He was a model of good works. He watched his life and his doctrine and continued to do so, and in doing so, he saved himself and those who heard him. Brothers, the righteousness that we need to hold the office of overseer is the righteousness of Christ that he exhibited in his office as our chief overseer. And the forgiveness that we need to hold office is the sacrifice of Christ that he made in his office. This is a trustworthy saying and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom ministers are the worst. Jesus, friend of sinners. Jesus, friend of ministers. Brothers, Christ is our justification to hold office. He's also our sanctification as we hold office. In Titus chapter 2, 11 to 14, Paul says that the grace of God that has appeared in Christ has brought salvation to all people, training us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Paul goes on to say that Christ gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people zealous, for good works. Notice the language he uses. 
as the purpose and effects of the gospel. People who will live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives, zealous for good works. The exact same terms used for the qualifications of an overseer. In other words, the very qualifications for a minister set by God are provided by God through the saving work of Christ and His Spirit. This is why Christ is our sanctification as well as our justification. You cannot be united to Christ and not be both justified and sanctified. The thief on the cross, when he put his trust in Christ, in that moment he had his sins washed away. And he also had his mouth washed out. Within seconds, he was a different man, and he spoke differently. And so, brothers, if we are feeling burdened by our sin, discouraged by our inadequacies, let us go and visit our minister. Let us go and visit Jesus Christ, the minister of ministers. Because when we do, we will not find a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but a high priest who in every respect was tempted and tested as we are yet without sin. We will not find a king on a throne of judgment, but a king on a throne of grace, where we can find mercy and grace to help in our time of need. We will not find a prophet with a word of rebuke to us, but a prophet with a word of grace, who will commission us to go back open our Bibles and our studies, and then stand behind the pulpit and say to the church and world, thus says the Lord. Of course, we will only be able to do any of this, justified and sanctified by Christ, by God's grace, which is how the apostle Paul finishes this letter with a word of grace, a benediction, Grace be with you. Which brings us to our fourth and final point, a good word, which is what a benediction is. We've seen a good desire, a good work, a good man, and now a good word. Grace be with you. If it is true that the coals of orthodoxy are required for the fire of piety, and equally so that the coals of piety are required for the fire of orthodoxy, then perhaps we could say that God's grace is the oxygen for both of them. And the good news, brothers, for those of us united to Christ by faith is that grace, grace, and more grace is available for us in abundance. For the God whom we serve has already pronounced His benediction over us in Christ by His Spirit. Grace be with you. Amen and amen. Let us pray. Father, may Your Son, the Lord Jesus, so reign in us that what was true of Him may be true of us. And we ask this for his sake and for your glory. Amen. Well, I hope you enjoyed that daunting yet hopefully encouraging talk on who the Lord calls to be teaching elders and ruling elders within his church. Hopefully also whet your appetite for this year's upcoming Gospel Reformation Network Conference, which will be held in Matthews, North Carolina, which is my own backyard. And the dates for that are May 3rd and 4th. And that's really Charlotte, North Carolina, if you don't know where Matthews is. And so easy in, easy out to that airport. And we will look forward to that. You can go to gospel gospelreformation.net and find out all about the conference, and also receive a whole bunch of other resources there.
Thanks for listening to the Presbyterian and Reformed Churchmen. If you are enjoying this content and you know other ruling elders that will benefit from it, please share it with them. Send them links to it. We are on YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, and it seems like every podcast platform has a, picks up the feed, and so you can find it there. Also, wherever you listen to it, go ahead and follow it on that platform and like it. And if you can write comments, that would be good too. That helps our searchability, if that is even a word. Last thing, I have a lot of guests I'm excited for in the upcoming months. And so I know the last two weeks I've done something a little different, but rest assured and stay tuned because uh, I'm excited about some of the interviews that we have coming up. Until then, glorify God and enjoy Him forever.